Well, year two was an interesting year for many of you by the sound of it. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Andre said the best thing about year two was break time. Jeff was going in the same direction. He said going home was the best time. I think a few of us can agree with that. Imelda has said walking through the bush with my sister one minute from Wentworth Falls to Lura. There we go. There we go. Um, Kylie, I'm not even sure what that is. So thanks for commenting, Kylie. Not sure what it is, but thank you. That's excellent. Uh, Micah said playing with friends. Uh, handball. Rod has said uh, year two. Oh, crayons on the classroom door. That's not so good. Uh, some knitting, reading stories, sport time. Ruth, you have said you're kidding, Steve. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding, Ruth. <laughs> it's good to hear your voice too. Thank you for sharing that. Tree planting, singing songs, playing the saxophone, playing He-Man at lunchtime, going to old Sydney town. Oh, how good. Uh, lots of other things. Fraser said building boats. Thanks, Fraser. Marcus said his excursion. You only went on one in year two, Mark, uh, Marcus. That's a bit of a shame. All right. Uh, a few other things. Uh, lollies and chocolates. Uh, Fanning, Paige and Annika want the chocolates now. Well, Paige and Annika, you're welcome to have the chocolates now. Uh, I said that that's okay. Uh, let's, uh, there's a lot of uh, really helpful things here about what happened for you in year two. Uh, the faraway tree gets a mention uh, and lots of other uh, helpful things as well. Thank you for sharing those things. For me, year two was at Yarrawarra Public School. It was with my teacher, Mrs. Saville, and I had the opportunity to choose my own spelling words. And so not one to uh, do things by half measures. I always try to take things to uh, ridiculous uh, nth degrees. That's been the case since I was a child. I decided to choose the most long and complicated spelling words I could find. What this meant for me was that I started by looking at many of the Sri Lankan cricketers' names and put them in my spelling words. Kapula Wijajuna Radena was my first one. I then moved on to uh, a, fa- a famous word in our household. Uh, we called it kahuchi, but I think it's kauchuk. Uh, I think you're supposed to say it like that. And, and the, the memory that we had for it was C-A-O-U-T-C-H-O-U-C. That's how you spell kahuchi in our household. And then, of course, the old favourite for the spelling words, anti-disestablishmentarianism. I loved that in my spelling list in year two. In fact, the longer and more complicated the word was, the more excited I got. Now, if you're a psychologist at home, please turn off your psychology. I don't want your interest in my life just now, uh, because that's a little weird, isn't it, in year two? Uh, Perhaps uh, it's a little bit uh, odd and says a little bit more about my life. In fact, speaking of sharing something of my life, uh, you all did me a disservice last week. I mentioned blood orange gelato up at the gelato shop. Uh, when I went up in the afternoon, out of stock. So uh, that's the last time I share anything honest. No, that's all right. That's not true. Uh, it is a bit weird to look at the long and complicated words and pull them into your spelling list in year two. And in fact, at any time, because for the most part, most of us want to avoid in our life long words. We want to avoid those words. But sometimes long words accurately describe what it is that we're talking about. Now, we could pick all sorts of examples at this point, but it is true, isn't it, as I've already mentioned, that words like psychology or physiology or biology, these words all mean something, and they mean something accurately. Now, of course, I've chosen all of these words with the ending ology. This ending is about the discipline or science or logic of understanding something. 
And today we're about to lob into a series called Theologies, a play on words with the word theology. We're going to study theology as a general uh, discipline. Theology can by itself be divided into smaller parts. You'll see on your screen just now uh, an outline of this series with the nine ologies that we are going to look at together. Uh, Bibliology, theology, anthropology, Christology, pneumatology, soteriology, missiology, ecclesiology, eschatology, and you might think that just sounds like a lineup of a cricket team from overseas. For some of you, this will freak you out. Looking at all of these words, these big words, these long words, you'll say, what is all of this about? Why do we have to do such a thing? But I want to contend with you this morning that this sort of study is actually essential for us as Christians. Because as we get to understand these qualities, we will get to know our God better and we will get to love our God more. But it might be that with some of these things, you've got even more questions than normal. That's okay. I want to encourage you to jump onto slido.com using the hashtag HBSP and you can ask your questions and I'll answer some of those this morning. Likewise, grab a hold of those books that I recommended, not only the one in your pack this morning, but the two that I mentioned and they will help you as well. So let's pray as we dive in to have a look at the ologies and then later this morning, bibliology in particular. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this morning with these big words that we might make sense of them so that we might understand you better and come to know you more, that we might love you more. We ask this knowing that you are a good God who is worth knowing. And we ask, please, that you would teach us this day and throughout this series in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start straight at the top with the why question. Why would we spend nine weeks looking at big words like this, big words that have an overarching word over the top of them that we call theology. Well, can I begin by giving you five good reasons why we should do this? Number one, everyone is a theologian. Sometimes people say to me, I'm not a theologian, I'm just a regular Christian. I'm not a theologian, I'm not that deep in my thinking. But big word or not, everyone who thinks about God, is a theologian. At that level, even atheists are doing theology when they think about the non-existence of God. They are engaging in theological discipline. In this way, everyone is a theologian. There are only very few people in the world who are not theologically, uh, theologically aligned in their thinking. The question is not, am I a theologian? The question is, How do I make my conclusions about theology? And are they correct? Everyone is a theologian. Secondly, the reason we should do this is because love and knowledge are deeply connected. Some people say to me, I've got no need of theology. I just love Jesus and that's all. And that is a very admirable statement. And I understand exactly where it's coming from. However, there is some limitations to that way of thinking. Imagine for a minute that you married someone and that you got ready for the wedding and you all got there and you're uh, in the suit and in the white dress and standing at the front and you say, I do, and then you leave the building and you never talk to your spouse again. 
it would be madness, wouldn't it? Every marriage needs good communication, not just before the wedding, but well afterwards as well. As we run marriage enrichment courses, building a safe and strong marriage, one of the key things is communication because good communication in a relationship builds love and trust in a relationship. Love and communication go together. Some people are worried that if I deeply study the things of God, that I, that's just for the eggheads in the world, the academics. But no, it's for everyone. Not only because everyone is a theologian, but because there's a connection between love and knowledge. The more we know of someone or something, the more able we are to love that person. Thirdly, why do we do this theology? Well, we do it to get life right and to get the afterlife right. See, to study the creator, the redeemer of the world, is to know why he is and who he is and what he is and what he does. And to know more of God is to therefore know more of ourselves in relation to him. If we can know something about God's purpose and ways in the world, then we're better in a position to know more about ourselves and our purpose and reason for this world. It means that as we study God, we will actually see more clearly a picture of ourselves. We will know exactly what God wants for us in this life now. And we'll know exactly what God wants for us in the person of Jesus who died and rose again to give us eternal life. The more we know about God, the better we are able to get this life and the afterlife right. Now, sometimes people say, especially at a time like this, in a time of COVID-19 and so on, they say, actually, what our church needs is a message of help and support. And I want to contend with you this morning that there is nothing more valuable, nothing more helpful, Nothing more immediately relevant in this world than understanding our God better. Understanding what God has done for us so that we might continue to love and serve him. An understanding of him will highlight everything else in our life. Fourthly, we should do theology because Jesus said so. Remember in the Great Commission... Jesus sent out his disciples and us as well. But look at what he says in this passage in Matthew chapter 28. You'll see it on your screen just now. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We know that bit well, don't we? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But look at what he says. Highlighted in bold on your screen. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Quite simply, Jesus taught his disciples to keep teaching other disciples about who God is. And so we should do the same. And fifthly and finally, the goal of theology is adoration, not interrogation. See, the opponents of doing theology would say that it's too abstract, that we end up arguing over ideas and thoughts and words and Worse still, they may say that we interrogate the idea of God rather than loving God himself. That we treat God as an idea and a theme rather than a person to be loved and adored. But I want you to know that the Apostle Paul would never have stood for this. In the book of Romans, you've got the largest single theological discourse in all of the Bible. 
The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are a wide-ranging theology of really the whole Bible. But between chapter 11 and chapter 12, where Paul goes from all of the theology to what you should do with that theology, there's a section right in the middle that draws the two bits together. After this long sustained theology, look at how he responds in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? After this long sustained theology and before he gets to the application, Paul can't help himself but overflow with praise. See, this is the goal of theology. Knowing God leading to adoration and praise. And that is the goal of this series as well. We want for you to know God so that you might grow in love for him. Now, there might be even more than five reasons why we should do this theological practice, but there are just five for you as we begin this series. Because I know for many Christians, they say, why would you do such a thing? Now, before we dive into our first ology of the day, and I know this is a long introduction, I want to tell you about some various types of theology. And I'm going to do so by using the loaf of bread that I've got here. This is a This is a fresh loaf, to be honest, standing right next to it, it smells really good. There are various different ways that you can do theology. I'm going to highlight just three before we dive in this morning. Uh, The first is called biblical theology. Uh, That's not to assume that the rest of the ologies that you can find are unbiblical, uh, but it's just telling the story of the Bible as an unfolding historical narrative. And so, if you like, it's like the Bible is a loaf of bread and you're cutting the loaf all the way through from Genesis at this end to Revelation at this end. I'm not going to cut it because I need another loaf for tonight at six o'clock. But you understand the point. Cutting from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Another way of doing theology is what might be called historical theology. Historical theology is like a light that shines on the Bible. Looking at it from a historical point of view, how the themes are dealt with in history, how wise people, wiser than ourselves, have spoken about such passages throughout history. But we're not going to look at either of these disciplines in this series. Instead, we're going to look at what's called systematic theology. That is where you cut the Bible, if you like, into slices, into verses, into chapters, into themes, and you gather together the chapters and the themes and the doctrines that sit together. We're cutting the Bible in this direction and gathering out the slices that fit together. It's a bit like your filing cabinet at home. I know less and less of us have got these these days, but you can file your files by year or by person in the family or by the category of bill that has come in. And systematic theology is grabbing the categories and putting them all together. Well, with all of that said, we're going to finally dive into our first ology today. And interestingly, we don't start with God himself. Instead, we start with how we can know anything about God in the first place. We start with the Bible, bibliology, the study of the Bible. To do that, we need to think about authority. Every one of us has an authority in life. 
no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, there is a voice in your life that is louder than other voices. There is a voice that is a tiebreaker voice in a time of difficult decision. There is a, an influencer who is a larger voice in your world than other people. There is someone who, given the opportunity, would, would call the shots over and above somebody else. Maybe that's a wise friend or a parent or a spouse. Or maybe it's something bigger than that. It's an ideology or, or some advice that a life coach gives you or an author that you love infusing their information into your life. Or maybe your authority comes from within. Maybe in yourself, you're a, a very confident person. And so you're able to make those decisions from the authority of your own self, your own knowledge, or perhaps just from your own feelings. I choose what I feel. Either way, all of us have an authority in our life. And when it comes to thinking about God or doing theology, we also have an authority the question is, where does our authority come from? For some, when it comes to thinking about God, the authority about who gets to speak loudest about God comes from outside of themselves. Maybe it's a, a tradition. I've always believed this. Or maybe it's a, a creed or a confession. Or maybe it's just the focus of history. and This has been my way of doing things for the history of my life and my family's life or or maybe it's a Christian author that influences you to think about God in a certain way. Now, none of these things are by themselves bad things. They're all absolutely terrific things, but they make a very bad authority when it comes to talking about God. Now, again, some people don't look outward for their authority about God, but they look inward. They look inward and they find the authority about God to come out of their experiences. Or as, as they say, the still small voice that they hear. Or the life experience that they've had that seems to have worked and that must mean that God wants me to live that way and that's where they get their authority from. Or perhaps it comes from their mind, not so much from their feelings, but from their mind where they get their logic and mind and reason to form their authority on what God should or is not like. But I hope you know, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, that if you find your authority from within when it comes to things about God, you are finding it from, well, a corrupted source. Both our feelings, our experiences and our mind and logic are tainted by sin. Indeed, if we get advice from external, all the other people and experiences that speak into our life are similarly tainted by sin as well. Now, when it comes to God, what we need is an authority that comes from outside all of this. We need a word that is external. We need a word that is from God himself. And thankfully, God has spoken. This is our first, uh, first, the first of our points this morning. God has spoken and he has spoken in what he has made. Have a look at a couple of passages that you see on the screen. First of all, from Romans chapter 1. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Look at this, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We see it again in various other passages, uh, like Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Have a look at this one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or from Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And again in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. These invisible qualities of God have become visible in the creation around us. This is how God reveals himself to the world. However, we have a little bit of a problem. The problem is that though these things are available to us, none of us take this invitation to know God through the world around us. Look at, the Rome, look at Romans chapter 1 again. What Paul goes on to say, his invisible attributes, namely eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what Romans says. Though it's possible to know God from the creation around, every human being suppresses this information and turns it against God. Knowledge of God is possible in the creation around, but our sinful hearts suppress it and push it down so that we can no longer know God with any certainty from the things around us. In fact, instead, we take what we know from the creation around us and turn it into false gods. This general revelation that is generally applied to everyone, that is received by all, results in no one coming to know the true God. It only leaves people without excuse before God. It's kind of like this. Imagine for a minute you didn't know me, but you saw me in the street. You never met me, but you saw me over the other side of the street walking along. You'd be able to draw some conclusions about me. You'd be able to say, ah, he's tallish. He's certainly bald. That's very clear to see. He has some facial hair that probably belongs back in 1994 and not in the present day. I can draw some conclusions about this guy, but your conclusions might end up being wrong. I've told you this story before, but I've been to many a music festival where for whatever reason, people have come up to me assuming that I'm going to be the one that has drugs on me to sell to them. Happens over and over again. I take great pride in telling them, no, I'm an Anglican minister. Can I help you with anything? (laughs) See, the outside perception is not the reality. We might be able to see from the creation around us how good things are, but it reveals nothing of the true self of who God is. What we need is for God to reveal himself. And thankfully he does. He reveals himself in his word. He reveals himself in his word The word that we find at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 where the word 
speaks things into existence. The word revealed as, uh, as the Son of God in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Jesus is the word of God. The word of God that the prophets predicted. The word of God that the apostles recorded and applied the life of to us. Jesus is the word of God. And yet, the word of God is not only a person, but it is a written word. A written word given to us in the scriptures. As that famous verse from 2 Timothy 3.16 says, you see it on your screen, all scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has spoken definitively to us in his incarnate son, the word of God, and in his written word that speaks about the incarnate son of God. And thankfully, God's word, because it is breathed out by God, is perfect and righteous. We saw earlier David speak in Psalm 19 about the beauty of creation. And the first six verses of that psalm are all about how wonderful creation is. But then at verse 7, David turns everything around in the great psalm. And look at what he says in verse 7. The law of the Lord... It's not just excellent like the creation. It's perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. David is saying in Psalm 19 that God's word trumps God's creation. And we've already seen why that is the case. God has spoken to us. He is to be our final authority for he has spoken in his word, the incarnate son of God and for us, his written word that we take each and every week, every day. So there's lots of things that we could say about God's word, therefore. Not only that it's perfect and righteous, but many other things we could say. Now, we don't have the time to do that this morning, but what things could we say about God's word? Well, first of all, God's word is, uh, here's another big word for you, inerrant. It is without error. Even though God used human beings to write the scriptures, as we saw in 2 Peter, the passage Nathan read for us, it is nonetheless without error. Take, for example, just a few passages of scripture. Again, you'll see them on your screen. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Or in John 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true truth and then in Hebrews 6 and you can read the rest of the context about this uh, halfway through a sentence but we see this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie and then another one in Titus 1 1 and 2 Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God here it is who never lies promised before the ages began. And then in the book of Romans, we see this statement from the Apostle Paul, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God's word is without error. It is inerrant. 
And so what does this mean for us? Well, it means that the perfect God of the universe has taken the time to speak to us human beings. And so we should have an assumption and make a priority and take the posture of a student before the Almighty God. He is our authority. That's one of the reasons why we've given you this little book over, uh, over this morning, before you open your Bible. It's an opportunity for you to uh, recognise the posture we are to have with God's word being the authority in our lives. God will not speak in our inner ear or we, through history and tradition or reason in a louder way than he will speak through his word. And it means, therefore, if God is our authority and his word is without error, then it means that we let it read us rather than uh, us read it. But at the same time, we do read the Bible as we read any other book. We'll talk more about this on Wednesday in our little seminar. But the Bible has all sorts of genres and types and kinds, and we use our normal human intuition to read the very spiritual book that we call the Bible. Let me give you just one example of this at the end of Psalm chapter 19. We've been in this chapter a little bit. Look at what it says in Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Sometimes people say, well, because the Bible is without error, we must read read everything literally. Now, we should read it literally. But we shouldn't read it literalistically. So when we read that the Lord is my rock and my redeemer, we don't go for a bushwalk this afternoon and find every rock and call it God. Now, none of us were intending to do that, were we? But it's interesting that we do read the Bible in this way, a literalistic way without recognition of genre or type or kind. And we do get our heads off and replace it with a pumpkin when we get to all sorts of other parts of the Bible, like Revelation in the back half of Daniel and Zephaniah and other things. But more of that on Wednesday. God's word is perfect. And we read it with the human intelligence that he has given to us. Secondly, the Bible is inspired We've already seen, haven't we, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. You see it again on your screen. All scripture is breathed out by God. But then we see also in 2 Peter chapter 1, as Nathan read for us. You'll see this one on your screen as well. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This passage tells us that normal human beings like us were used by God, carried along by the Holy Spirit to write down the very words of God. These are, the, the, uh, as the uh, uh, early apostles and disciples of Jesus devoted themselves to the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. The apostles and the prophets were the ones carried along by God to write down his word. They were inspired to write down God's word. Today, no one is able to use the phrase, this is what God has told me to tell you. It's just not possible. 
Because none of us are apostles and none of us are Old Testament prophets. None of us are in the position to write the very words of God. And if anybody does say to you, this is what God has told me to tell you, then they're either ignorant or they're playing a power play or they're claiming to, deal, to, to receive an unchallenged authority to give to you. God does not inspire and carry along prophets and apostles like this anymore. The inspiring of the word of God has been done. But this is not to say that God is not at work anymore. In fact, he illumines his word to us by his Holy Spirit. Look at these passages that you'll see on the screen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the, uh, uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then finally in John 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, speaking to the first disciples, he will teach them all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This verse in John 14, 26 is an important one for us. It is applied to the apostles in that they will bring the, uh, the inspired word of God to others. And it speaks to us as the spirit will illuminate the very word of the apostles to our lives. This is important for us because the Bible is not just a book, it's a spiritual book. It's a book where we need God's promised Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Have you ever met that person? They've tried reading the Bible, they've picked it up and they've dived into it here and dived into it there or maybe read the whole lot, but they haven't come to faith. And yes, they've understood what's in the Bible, but they're not a Christian yet and you scratch your head and wonder how that can be. Why is there no response? Because it's a spiritual book. Though we can read it, we need the Holy Spirit to flick the switch in our lives so that we might understand it. And that's why, as this book will make clear that you've got in your packs this morning, before you open the Bible, you need to humble yourselves and be ready for God to speak. And so God's word is inerrant. It is without error. It is inspired by those who wrote it the first time. And it is illuminated in our lives by God's Holy Spirit. And so then, as we finish up, four final things that theologians will talk about in the word of God that are worth us knowing. First of all, the word of God is clear. 2 Peter chapter 3 will say that it's hard to understand the word of God. Remember, Peter says Paul's words are hard to understand sometimes. And if you find God's word hard to understand at times, that's okay. But that doesn't mean the Bible's not clear. The Bible is very clear about life and eternal life and godliness. It's everything we need for life and godliness. Jesus is the saviour of the world. 
He was the promised Messiah. His death and resurrection brings salvation to all who trust in him. And this is clear to all people, not just the, uh, the, uh, the academics and the eggheads, but to those who are uneducated, to children. The word of God is clear. Secondly, the word of God is necessary. In other words, without the word of God, as we've already seen this morning, we cannot be saved. As the disciples said to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. No human being can come to any conclusion about salvation or God himself. Without God, God's word is necessary. Thirdly, God's word is final. See, we may well use our mind and our feelings and our emotions and our logic and history and good Christian books to help us understand God and his word. But even then, we'll still find God's word strange in parts. But when we find it strange, it is not for us to work out in our own logic, but it's for us to sit under God's authority. It is the first and last authority in life, God's word. God's word is clear and necessary and final. And then God's word is sufficient. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God still speaks today. He speaks an authoritative word through his son promised in the Old Testament commissioned and, and taught of in the New Testament. He speaks a word that was inspired by the apostles and prophets and illuminated to our own lives. And this is the word that we need. It is sufficient. And so this morning, I want to remind you that God has spoken. God has spoken, yes, in the world, but none of us understand it. But he has spoken in the word that is inerrant and inspired and illumined to our lives. A word that is clear and necessary and final and sufficient. And so here's the final thing. So what? As we get to bibliology, what does it mean for our lives? Well, it means this. If God, the almighty God of the universe, has spoken then he alone should be our authority. He's the one who speaks into our life. He is the tiebreaker, the influencer. He's the one that speaks as the authority into our lives. We must let him do so. Secondly, when we come to his word, our posture is incredibly important before God's word. As we've already mentioned, we do not sit over God's word. God's word sits over us. God's word reads us before we read God's word. We must always have this posture before him. Thirdly, if you're looking for God, searching for him, looking for him to have a place in your life, to have an impact in your life, look in the right place. There's lots of people at Bunnings at the moment, isn't there? Heaps of people, apparently. But it would be silly to go to Bunnings for medical supplies. Sometimes we go looking in the wrong places for God. And he is screaming out from his word, ready to speak to us. Look in the right place. And then finally, we should delight in God's word. Psalm 119 
is a brilliant psalm, the longest in the Bible, some 170 verses in Psalm 119. But it is a great poem, as the writer Kevin DeYoung says, it's a love poem from, uh, from the psalmist to God about his word, how much he loves his word. And we are to delight in God's word also. Look at this final verse from Psalm these final verses from Psalm 19. This is how some of the writers in the Bible describe delighting in God's word. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. And then Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Why are they delightful? Why are they like honey, sweeter than the comb? Well, God's words are delightful to us because in them we find the one true God who we'll meet in person next week as we look at theology proper. Well, thank you for your time this morning, uh, bearing with a longer introduction as we dive into this together. I'd love you to write uh, uh, in slido.com using the hashtag HBSP some questions that you might have. I'm going to give you 90 seconds or so to reflect, uh, and then we'll come back and answer some of those in just a moment. Thank you so much for your questions this morning, everyone. Really appreciate you writing those in. Please keep them coming. Uh, I have uh, just one question at the moment. There's another one just arrived there. Uh, First of all, how did those who put the Bible together, I think that means collated the Bible, know what to include and what not to include? Uh, They were not apostles or disciples of Jesus. 
Correct. They were not apostles or disciples of Jesus. Uh, unlike today, the information that got around took some time to do so. Um, and so the, uh, the writings that were, were done were being passed around, as you know, the letters from church to church and so on in the New Testament. Uh, and it took a while for all of those things to, to come together. What you're talking about in this question is the formation of what we know as the canon of Scripture, the, the, the Bible that we have before us. Uh, put simply, the Old Testament, if you were uh, a Jewish person in the days of Jesus, you would have understand, uh, understood uh, the Old Testament as the law written by Moses, who was considered a prophet, uh, and therefore he wrote that down, the law, uh, the first five books of the Bible. Then you have every book from then on uh, being described as either uh, the former prophets or the latter prophets, all written by prophets, in other words, all the way through. Then you've got the wisdom literature written by uh, the kings and the, and the prophets of God. So that is in the Old Testament, uh, and that is uh, what was verified by Jesus. Uh, you'd imagine, wouldn't you, that if the Old Testament had not been collated properly, that one of the most important things Jesus, the Son of God, would have come to do is to put it right. But he didn't do it. He accepted the canon as it was. And so that's how we get our Old Testament. In the New Testament, sometime uh, in the 300s, there was uh, some councils that put together this, uh, this document of the New Testament. And yes, the criteria was, was this written by an apostle? That was the criteria. Uh, there were some that didn't uh, quite fit that criteria and that were allowed in under uh, different circumstances and there was plenty of debate around that, most particularly the books written by the brothers of Jesus, James and Jude. There was a, a great deal of debate around those particular books, but the, uh, the consensus was that because they were the brothers of Jesus that they also were allowed to have their books included in the canon as well. So the apostleship of a person, uh, relationship to Jesus and closeness and selection by Jesus was the criteria by which they put those books together. There's a lot more we could say, but thank you for that question. A uh, couple of things here, recognising Rod has said uh, that saying, I've had a word from the Lord or God told me to say is not right. Is there a more helpful way to encourage each other through scripture? Thank you for that. I'll come to that in a minute. The next question, is it uh, not right to say I had a word from the Lord? Um, yes, I think that is correct. It is not right to say I had a word from the Lord. Um, we have a word from the Lord. It's called the Bible. It's called the scriptures. Now, does that mean God doesn't work directly in our lives and he can't prompt us to do things? That's true, but we need to recognise that those things might also be wrong. It's interesting, isn't it, that when the devil tempts Jesus in the desert, he tempts him with the word of God. So sometimes our promptings may not be from God. How do we know for sure that our promptings are not a twisting of the Bible given to us that's actually from the evil one? That's very possible because that's the way he dealt with Jesus. Our inner promptings, whatever they are, always need to be available to be wrong because we're sinful people. God's word, however, written and put before all of us is inerrant. It's never wrong. Uh, we may be wrong as we understand God's word, but God's word itself is never wrong. That's why we together read God's word. Think about this for a minute. If God gives me a word and I tell you, God told me to say this to you, you can't ever prove that to be wrong it's always correct but if it's an objective word written on the page and I say this is what it says in God's word you can say to me that's not what it says in God's word you've misunderstood it completely and so if someone says I've had a word from God there's a few things going on one they might just be ignorant to that and they might just have a nice feeling that they want to help you with 
Be gracious to people, that's fine. It's still incorrect, but it's a bit ignorant. Secondly, uh, there are some people out there, particularly Christian leaders, who will say, I've had a word from God, so that you can say, hang on, you're wrong, and they can never be wrong. It's an accountability problem. And they want to make sure that they can have an authority that doesn't, uh, that then can go unchallenged, which is unhelpful completely. So I want to say to you, it's just a simple turn of phrase. Just say this, I feel as though God may be saying to me, or I feel as though God may be prompting me to say this to you or whatever, because a feeling could be wrong. So that'd be the way I'd communicate that. Uh, finally, are there sections of the Bible that are not considered to be God's word? Um, yes, there are two. Based on manuscripts, and we didn't go into any of that today. You can ask me about that on Wednesday if you want. There's various manuscripts of the Bible out there. The Bible is a very well-attested ancient historical document, well worth trusting. Absolutely no problems there whatsoever. But there are two sections, one in John's Gospel and one in Mark's Gospel. And both of, both of these sections are not uh, in the most reliable manuscripts. And there's all sorts of reasons why that's the case. But they're both included in your Bibles, uh, but they both say at the top, the most reliable manuscripts don't contain these sections. So Mark 16 uh, is a classic section at the end. People sometimes say, uh, this is a section where it says Christians will be able to drink deadly poison and be bitten by snakes. Uh, It's not in the Bible. Uh, And also the other section, which is uh, an interesting one, is the one talking about uh, uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's the one in John, actually. And that's the one that's not there in the scriptures as well. It's helpful for us but I don't think those sections are God's word. Um, These are big things and big questions. Happy to talk to you some more through the week. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your inerrant word inspired to the apostles and prophets, illumined to our heart by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that it is